Now, in this talk this evening, I'm going to basically explore some fundamental principles from Aquinas about happiness, what it is. It turns out it's not such an easy topic. It's actually, philosophically speaking, a difficult thing to understand what human happiness is. It's actually also difficult to understand what a human being is, and it's difficult to be happy. But it's more important, all the reason, it's more important to try to understand it. And then I'm going to offer some polemical remarks about what you might call false coinage with regards to happiness, or erroneous views, or views that would be erroneous if Aquinas happens to be right. So I'm going to go through my basic principles on the handout, and I'm building, I'm kind of building an account loosely, in, well, definitely in some ways strictly inspired by Aquinas, but it's my own presentation of the order. And I've given you passages from the Summa Theologiae if you want to go back and study him in his own words. So here's the first principle. All human beings desire by nature to be happy and cannot avoid doing so. And this is the first principle of practical reason. Now Aquinas talks about speculative reason and practical reason. Speculative or theoretical reason is the desire to understand reality. Not to change it, just to understand it. And he believes the first principle of speculative reason or theoretical understanding is what he calls the principle of non-contradiction. It's a very humble but very important theoretical principle. I cannot both say that there's a man on the stage wearing white and there's a man on the stage wearing black or that there's a man on the stage and that there's a kangaroo on the stage and so forth. We can make distinctions about things and we can distinguish one thing from another. And we do that with the intellectual power of judgment. Judgment, in a certain sense, making a judgment about the truth perfects the human intellect. And the intellect starts from this kind of awareness of the distinction of things. Okay, so we can apprehend being, things being real, this thing being not being that thing, these things having this structure, that, those things having another structure. But then in that field of understanding of being, we begin to also understand that some things are desirable. To take a simple example, at some point in your life, someone fed you chocolate, and you began to understand even intellectually that it was desirable. And you began to acquire a habit of eating chocolate, and then it became an addiction, and so forth. Or maybe that didn't happen to you. But if it didn't happen to you, you're a st statistical rarity. <laughs> the point is, the intellect can begin to experience realities and think about their goodness, and then it can orient itself towards them practically. So an example I'll come back to later. To, you get to know a human being who happens to just be a colleague in university or at work, and then eventually you begin to apprehend they have delightful qualities, wonderful qualities, and you see a possibility of friendship with them. What has happened there? Your mind has, great, has gazed upon the goodness of the person, and you've begun to see it's desirable to experience friendship, the, the restfulness, the delight of friendship. Okay, so the pursuit of the good is the first principle of practical reason. And Aquinas boils it down, following Aristotle, to a very simple axiom, <coughs> seek the good and avoid what's evil. It's very minimalist. You might think it's actually good to 
become the despotic leader of a world regime and eradicate all your enemies by putting them in death camps, the principle would still hold for you because you're pursuing what you believe to be good and trying to avoid what you believe to be evil. The point isn't to give you already a very strong normative morality. It's just to say human beings are motivated by the desire for the good to avoid what they take to be evil. And in that, they are irreducibly seeking happiness and they cannot not do so. This means that the human being in all of our daily choices at base fundamentally is motivated by the desire for happiness. And because this desire is so fundamental, it can potentially torture us. It has, as I say, torturous aspects. I don't mean it in a, I mean it in a loose metaphorical sense. And yet, not entirely. I am speaking to you as a philosopher tonight, but I am also a Catholic priest. So I happen to talk to people about their desires for happiness or the difficulties they have in that department frequently. And it is not unfair to say all of us on some level experience grave concerns, worry, sometimes a little bit of unhappiness and torment about our capacity to realize our inextinguishable desire for happiness. And we do that because we know intuitively we are potentially capable of being subject to tragedy. If the human beings we know and we are didn't want happiness, Shakespeare's tragedies would make no sense to us. We wouldn't be able to understand the dramas of human literature as being poignant, meaningful, sad, or tragic because we wouldn't be able to think about the restless desire for happiness that animates each of us. It's a very fundamental point. All human beings want to be happy. Second point, happiness, this is Aquinas, of course, happiness for the rational animal is grounded in activities of knowledge and also voluntary deliberative love. So, I mean, you can start with this kind of negatively, actually, by talking about Hume. Hume, um, in a way, wants David Hume, Scottish skeptical philosopher, Enlightenment philosopher, wants to understand the human being primarily in animalistic terms. And a lot of contemporary Humeans consider themselves naturalists who see the human being as basically, essentially, and only a highly evolved mammal motivated by animal pursuits of emotional and instinctual desire for pleasure and to avoid pain. And so Hume reduces, or in fact tries to define human happiness primarily in terms of sentiment. And he means by that animal sensation and inner psychological sense of well-being achieved through inner experiences of the emotions and the senses. It's a very modest conception of happiness. Immanuel Kant reacts against Hume. He says famously he was awoken from his dogmatic slumber by Kant, by Hume. And Kant is worried that theories of happiness as the basis of morality, coming from Aristotle, will lead people into selfish behavior. I'm good to other people to procure something for myself, my, my own happiness. So Kant wants to locate happiness in, or more morality, in being consistently principled in his human reason. 
the so-called categorical imperative. Do to other people what you ought to do for them to allow civil society to function well for all. A kind of universal maxim of justice. It's not a bad idea. But the point is that you have Hume locating happiness in sentiment and Kant locating happiness in acting rationally. And Aquinas is more complicated and different. Aquinas thinks happiness comes through the search for the truth. That's actually the fundamental thing for him. How do we become happy, stable? How do we gain perspective on life that gives us a deep inner resource of happiness through the search for the truth? And then Aquinas joins with that the search to love rightly and well in the will. Now, the will for Aquinas is a spiritual faculty. It's not just your feelings or your passions or your emotions. It's your choice making and it's your desire to love another person for their own good, to be loved by them for what's most personable in you. Okay, so the point is for Aquinas from the beginning, happiness is rooted in a way of life in which you're seeking the truth and you're seeking to love and be loved in a way that is grounded in good choice making. Again, it's very general. We still haven't gotten very specific. But it's interesting to think already about where you're going to try to find happiness. You know, are you going to try to find happiness by watching every... This, maybe this isn't a temptation for too many of you and maybe not too many men in the room, but to watch every Hollywood romance movie. And every Hollywood romance movie, you just increase the intensification and the emotional catharsis will make you happy. Not for Aquinas. <laughs> for Aquinas, there's something deeper and more profound that is required to give you the stability of happiness. And that's the search for truth about reality and kind of finding the truth about reality and living in the truth through a kind of rightly ordered love. To love well and rightly God and others, as we'll come to. Okay, third thing. Through stable activities... So uh, there is, I want to make an analogy that's uh, maybe not such a psychologically attractive analogy, but think about um, if you're trying to, if you have a health problem and you're told you have to exercise, or think about if you just start exercising for the first time in life and it's not obvious to you, okay? The first day you exercise is difficult. The second day you exercise is less difficult. The third day, you build up a habit of exercise, habitus. And people don't like it because it, there's some pain, you know, often because of the muscles secreting acids. It, it, your body is feeling some pain when you begin to do exercise, but eventually it gets easier and actually you begin to feel good in your body when you exercise. Okay. The point is you don't exercise because you're always at every moment getting emotional fulfillment. Sometimes you actually have to push yourself. So Aquinas is also like this with the spiritual life of knowledge and love. And by the way, I'm not talking about religion here. I'm just talking about, so far, natural human activities, seeking the truth, seeking to love rightly and well. So Aquinas is going to say you have to kind of build up exercises of truth-seeking and of loving rightly and well so that you can acquire a stability as a person of knowledge and reason and as a person of love and of virtue. Okay, and that's why we talk about habits of the virtues. Sometimes when you hear people talk about the virtues, you think it's 
primarily the moral virtues. The classic cardinal moral virtues are prudence, justice, temperance, fortitude. But actually, Aquinas thinks the intellectual virtues are really significant, like wisdom, which is the virtue of seeing things in their ultimate light, getting perspective on things in their ultimate light, or science. For him, that means science is explaining things by their proper causes. Uh, insight, intellectus, understanding things habitually well. You know, like you see, you see someone who reads people well, like they have insight into how people work. That's a kind of virtue for Aquinas to be able to have intellectus, intellectual penetration, to get who somebody is, and that you can build that up. And these kinds of intellectual virtues give the human being stability as a truth seeker in a whole lots of different ways. Okay, so what have we got? We're trying to find happiness through, for Aquinas, the, the rational pursuit of the truth and the love of the good in stable and habitual ways. Actually, we haven't said that much yet, but we're just saying some very basic things about how human beings are as rational, truth-seeking animals who work through stable habits and who have strong desires and have to choose how to love and how to love well and intelligently. Okay, point number four. Now, we're not seeking just any kind of knowledge or any kind of love but knowledge of the highest things and the possession of the most important goods. Now, here I have to say a few things. The problem with seeking the truth is there's so much of it out there. I was talking to a Dominican this morning at breakfast. He said, what are you doing in Portugal? I told him the title of the talk. He said, oh, St. Thomas on happiness. That's easy. For St. Thomas, you're happy when you study. And if you know the friar, it's very revelatory. He's happy when he's studying. The truth is, however, in the Dominican life, we do study often every day. I try to study every day. And it does lead to a great deal of happiness because, you know, you, you're, you're thinking about really profound truths. Um, I have friends who are really, really brilliant university doctorate level people who study I'll just say other subjects. Sometimes it's medicine, or important things, medicine or you know, history. And they'll, say, and they'll talk to me sometimes about theology and philosophy, and they'll say, you know, I like what I study or what I do. It's really important, unquestionably important. But what you study in philosophy and theology is really interesting. It's like almost like a higher you know, topic. Now, that's, that may sound elitist. The philosophers and theologians are studying the most important things. But the, the, the fact of the matter is, the human being is capable of wondering not just about how to fix the car. I don't know why the car isn't working. I don't know what's wrong with the heat in my room. Why is the heater not working? I don't know um, exactly what's going on in this part of the leg that's making it difficult to, to walk. Uh, but can also think about the political economy. I mean, how can we, how can we um, try to create a better a balance between uh, fundamental wage requirements and inclusion in the economy, or um, you know, ethical questions like how should we have a balanced uh, uh, view of immigration in a complex political situation, et cetera, et cetera. But you can also get into deeper questions like what is a human being really? And maybe we don't have to despair of that question being answered. Maybe we really can figure out what we are. Do we have a spiritual soul? 
Or are we just bits of matter that highly evolved through chance processes? Or should we believe that we are highly evolved mammals and that we have spiritual souls? Which is the view some take, like myself. Or is it reasonable to believe that there's a religious meaning to human existence? Okay? Or is there not? Uh, and if there is or isn't, how ought we to live? Okay. Those kinds of questions Aquinas does think are places where the human intellect can engage at a much deeper level. And when it begins to answer those questions philosophically, can give the human being stability. You know, when we talk in American English about stability, it's usually a psychological term. Like, you're hiring someone for a job, and you say, is he or she a stable person? Are they going to come to work every day? Uh, are they psychologically able to work with other people? But even behind the psychological stability questions on the deepest level, there's like existential stability. Are you existentially stable? And sometimes being existentially unstable is a sign of rationality <laughs> because it's not always obvious why we're doing everything we're doing and what our motivations should be ultimately. And so Aquinas, when he talks about wisdom, is talking about the deepest knowledge of truth that gives you stability on a deep existential level to live your life well because you know why you are what you are and you have perspective on how to live in light of what's ultimately real. And he thinks that's a kind of stability philosophy and study can afford. I mean, I think there's all kinds of ways on even more mundane levels we engage with that, with like the wisdom of being an ethical person in your work. You know, so you're at work and you're thinking about what's the just thing to do, how to have an ethical relationship with the people you live with or work with. Those kinds of, uh, that kind of search for the truth in ethics in a local community of work or university or family even, is a kind of wisdom where you touch on ultimate things and there's a kind of stability in the search for the truth there. When it comes to love, um, Aquinas uh, is very interested in what we could call second person relationships. Now, second person is a grammatical term. Okay, I'm talking about like you, thou, the other person I address as a person, interpersonally. So when I talk about a second person relationship, that's when I'm talking to another person who I'm saying you to, and they're saying it to me. It's an interpersonal relationship. And in that relationship, of course, there's intelligence. You don't have a friendship with another person, or even a, seer, a, a mere relationship of justice, or even an argument, for that matter, an altercation, an opposition without intelligence, because there's always an understanding, maybe a misunderstanding, but there's an insight and understanding and engagement of the mind in and through which you love or try to tolerate or try to do the right thing for another person. Aquinas thinks that we are in a way hardwired in our desire for happiness, not only for the search for the truth, but also the search for second person relationships. And that means fundamentally for him, not just relationships of justice, but relationships of charity, of friendship, of mutual love. <laughs> Aquinas has a question where he asks, 
Do you owe justice to every stranger you meet on the road? It's a famous classical question from ancient Greece. You have obligations to the person in your city or your nation. Do you have obligations to the total stranger? And Aquinas asks the question, do you owe justice to the stranger? And he says, yes, and even what he calls benevolence or um, amicableness. Amicableness, he says, is the friendliness you show strangers or mere colleagues because it opens justice up to friendship, which is a more perfect completion of justice. In other words, he's saying when you're just to other people, it's like a preparation to potentially be a friend to them. And to be a friend to another person, he says, is to will the good of the other, to want to see the other person flourish for his or her own sake. It's not a captivity of the other, a possession, a manipulation, an egoistic use. The love of the other is a desire for the other's flourishing, but it is also a desire for the other to want your good and for you to both delight in the goodness of one another and to share a common life of delight in the goodness of one another. All right, so it's not merely like stoic, like I'm going to go out and make friends with the people who actually I have the least connaturality with or the least disposition to like so I can prove I can be friends with anyone and I'm going to just be, I'm grit my teeth and just be sheerly just towards them to prove I really love other people for their own sake. That's not it. It's you're just towards the other people, but you're in view of wanting their good and they're wanting your good, but also delighting in each other's fellowship around a set of mutual activities, a shared life. There's lots of ways to share life with another person. His idea is one thing people can share, Aristotle says, Aquinas says, is the search for the truth. Uh, I think in a Christian way you could say the search for God. Okay. Second person relationships for Aquinas in part also extend to God for human beings philosophically. Um, I'll say more about that in a minute. But the point is that if we live in a universe of persons, and if persons are characterized as animals, personal animals, are characterized by knowledge and love, search for the truth, search to love and be loved personally, then maybe the universe is ultimately explained in relation to something first that is mysteriously personal, that the religious traditions call God. And Aquinas thinks that's true. He thinks it's demonstrably, provably true. And therefore, there's a way in which we can seek a kind of second person relationship to God. We can call the source of reality you, thou. Okay. So, to talk then about um, other goods, point five, I say, what are these goods? What is this knowledge? He is, based on the kinds of the sketch I'm giving you, Aquinas is going to negate what he would call a couple of, some, a number of false substitutes. So, he does not think the highest good can be pleasure, either sensible pleasure or even a more rich, refined aesthetic pleasure. Um, you might call it a kind of elevated hedonism, an elevated hedonism which might, I don't know, I mean, I don't want to be caricatural, but let's just say opera, okay? I actually have a few friends who I think are trying to find the meaning of their life in opera. Um, it it's, might be better than, than whiskey. Um, I'm not sure about that, but anyway... <laughs> 
It can't be pleasure because it's too fleeting. It's too fleeting is, you know, transitory, impermanent. We need that inner stability to give us happiness. We can't just bathe ourselves in our senses and get our deep existential spiritual problems to go away. I'm going to just drink the whiskey and go to the opera and stop worrying about the truth and loving well and rightly. And I'm just going to immerse myself in highly refined or more vulgar sensitive experiences and get rid of my existential problems. It doesn't work famously enough. Okay, it can't be honor because honor is too exterior. It's a perception. So, you know, I'm, on the, I'm like the little gerbil. I'm on the, the treadmill and I'm running through all my classes. I'm running through all my work because I'm going to get honor. And when I've got honor, people are going to respect me. They're going to look at me. They're going to say, oh, you're something. Okay, and then they're going to die and I'm going to have to find somebody else to look at me or I'm going to like fall off the little wheel, the gerbil that gets tired, and then they're going to stop looking at me. Okay, honor is very uh, fragile. You don't live for honor. It can't be power because power is merely instrumental. I've taken over the country. I've put all my uh, you know, enemies in, in, the, in the gulag and, uh, and, and, um, and now what? You want me to be a philosopher and love rightly and well? Where's that whiskey? Um, it can't be work or artistic creativity because um, the products of work and artistic activity are inferior to ourselves. Now, I want to say a word about this. There's a way in which what I just said is false. Um, work, and especially the more artistically creative forms of work, that could be artistic creativity could be running a business or starting a business. It could be uh, running a law firm. Uh, there's a, politics involves a certain amount of art. It could be political. Uh, it could be med, medicine is a kind of art. Okay, so art can be seen widely here. Art is a kind of search for the truth. I mean, a person who's like trying to be a good surgeon is seeking the truth in a, in a very particular domain. So. Artistic realization, work, creativity can be a certain kind of research for the truth, and it does give people stability. People who are depressed, one of the things you try to talk to them about is getting, making sure they're regular at their work, because their work is going to be like a stabilizing factor for them in terms of a kind of regular, they're regularly doing something that's kind of truth-centered, they're trying to do, do something true in its own practical domain, and it gives them a certain sense of their own capacity to give themselves to others, i.e., you know, friendship and justice. Okay, but even if I, even if I, you know, uh, paint the Mona Lisa, the Mona Lisa hanging in the Louvre is less than a human person. It just is. Because every human person is something much more profound and rich and indomitable than the picture painted by da Vinci. Even if da Vinci teaches me a lot about what a human person is. The Mona Lisa teaches me something amazing about painting, about human beings, about art, but it doesn't teach me as much as the real human being in front of me. Because the human being is always something we can't totally comprehend. We're always learning more about reality. Okay, so the point is, even artistic creativity and work is most fulfilling because it's person-centered. It's in relationships of the second person, in IU relationships with other people. But it has a certain qualification of our search for the truth, our realization of being rational, truth-centered beings. So 
I come back to then personal relationships with other persons according to virtue. There's plenty of ways according to virtue. There's plenty of ways to be in personal relationships where you mistreat the other person or you act basically in a way that's fundamentally self-oriented. That could be because of a crude self-orientation towards lust, but it can also be a very kind of spiritual self-orientation towards narcissism or manipulation. Okay, so friendship according to virtue is balanced where you really have a, a care for the other human being. Um, and I think that builds out for Aquinas into now, happiness is acquired through a life in society with others. It's not really just, I'm friends with this one person, uh, to hell with the rest of the world, I go off and live with my five friends and that's it. it, it I think for Aquinas to be a healthy person, happy person, you actually need the city in the Greek sense, the collective life. Uh, so you actually do need the world of art and the world of education and the world of medicine and technology. But you need all those things in a larger life of personal love and truth seeking. If you have all those goods and services and you don't have truth, the, the, center, the centering on the search for the truth and the search to love personally, you're not going to have everything. But those things flourish in and through a kind of network of life and society with justice and wisdom and prudence. This does not, it's important to say, this does not do away with lower goods. Like, so this, this may seem like a very elevated conception, but it isn't a conception of happiness that says, oh, your health doesn't matter, or it doesn't matter if you're poor to the point of misery. Uh, you know, we can just go out and tell people who are destitute, be happy, become a philosopher, love other people. No. Um, or that you don't need, like, inclusion in the st stable life of society. Like, part of the way we attain happiness is that we can live in society with fundamental basic goods, that we can contribute. That that's why the Catholic Church, when it builds out from Aquinas, talks about in, in a philosophical way, a fundamental right to education, to work, to inclusion in society, a right to have a family, and so forth. Because it's trying to think about fundamental goods that allow people to then achieve noble forms of happiness. Point seven, having said all that, <laughs> Aquinas also cuts back against this. And he says, even this like, more sophisticated form of happiness that I'm talking about is fairly imperfect and fragile. It's imperfect because we as human beings want forms of happiness that are stable and enduring, that cannot be undermined and threatened. We want happiness that, in, that can last, that cannot be taken from us. Now, you can contest that. You could say, no, no, no. There are, people want happiness that's fleeting. They want lots of life experiences. Listen, I'm just waiting till I'm you know, 25 and I'm going to get the heck out of Lisbon and I'm going to travel to Tibet and then I'm going to go after that to Australia and I'm going to have lots of life experiences. I'm going to change jobs every two years um, and uh, I'm just going to seek lots of experience. I know lots of young Americans like that. Not the majority, but this is a kind of trend in the United States. The, the, the life of multiple experiences. Um, that's a kind of search for the truth at best, and that we could say some good things about like having a cosmopolitan experience of the world. Uh, but deep down, we want happiness that can endure, and that comes through kind of doing this harder work. 
Now, Aquinas says the problem is you could not have the basic goods, okay? You know, it's hard to get gainful employment. It's hard to have uh, stable, sometimes it's hard to have stable health. There are some people who have chronic health problems when they're young. There's some people who acquire chronic health problems when they're middle-aged. And these weigh on the kinds of happiness he's talking about. I have a friend who's a very gifted theologian, very brilliant, who has, in the middle of life, just come down with, I hope it's temporary, uh, but he's just come down with an extremely grave illness, and he's unable to work intellectually at all. And it's been the center of his stability and, and life. I mean, he's also a person who's very prayerful, very spiritual, so he's living a religious life, but it's a huge loss in the middle of life sometimes. Sometimes if you lose the capacity to work, it can also affect you um, some people find themselves unable to marry, and so certain forms of friendship elude them. Some people have more difficulty finding stable, enduring friendships. Um, okay, and then the, ultimately we die, and uh, that's a reality. And you know, we, it's, this is a room of young people, so it's, it's good that it seems far off in a way. But um, I was in the room actually, I'm gonna say something pious now, so. I was in the room of Jacinta, where Jacinta lived for 12 days before uh, death in, after Our Lady, the vision of Our Lady of Fatima, where Our Lady of Fatima appeared to the child also in Lisbon. And um, it's just amazing to think about like, the meaning of a life that ends that early. And if you just look at that philosophically, that's not a happy life in the sense that Aristotle and Aquinas are talking about. And that's what Aquinas is saying. You know, Philosophically seen, when you die at 12 or, or 14 or whatever, you know, you're, you're, you're impaired from achieving the fullness of human existence. And the problem is there's also old age, chronic illness, the fragilities of that state, and mortality. So he doesn't say all that to say we shouldn't pursue all the kinds of happiness I was talking about. Actually, Aquinas famously says grace doesn't destroy nature. We should pursue all those forms of happiness. However, we should also see the challenge that is represented by the imperfection of natural happiness. You see where I'm going with this? You know, they're like, oh, I know where the priest is going with this. <laughs> we say in American English, there's gambling in the casino. <laughs> but it's not my fault. This is the teaching of Aquinas. So Aquinas actually has some pretty deep existential ruminations. The way he writes is not existentially tormented. He doesn't write like Dostoevsky. He doesn't even write like Augustine. Augustine is so clear about his own existential torment, writes poetically about it. Aquinas is so calm. He has this beautiful calm. But he actually articulates existential torment with a tremendous amount of sharp acuity. And so he's trying to show us that uh, our natural desire for happiness needs to be met with something yet higher than the natural goods that he's analyzed up to now. And this is where he brings in the answer of faith and grace because for him, the deepest second person relationship is acquired through friendship with God. Friendship with God comes about not just by philosophical knowledge of God because we don't know God well enough for Aquinas. We don't know God well enough philosophically to be friends with him. Actually, Aristotle says that. He says, a man who claims to be friends with God based on philosophical knowledge is either a madman or a god. But he's not a, but he's not a human being. 
He's not a human being. And Aquinas says, correct, if you're talking about nature. But with grace, the amazing thing is, we can not only know that God exists, Aquinas thinks we can know that God exists by natural reason, but it's hard, it's philosophical arguments because of God is reaching for the high shelf on a, on a, on a clear day, you know, but it, it, human reason can make it. Um, but he says that doesn't give you friendship with God. That's a gift. God can, as it were, reach down to us and invite us to friendship with God. And Aquinas says this is amazing because it's inexpensive. It doesn't require formal education. You don't need anything exterior to exert it. You can have it even when you're suffering or physically impaired. And it endures through death and after death. Now, if that's real, that's pretty good. So Aquinas thinks that actually faith is, of course, not, for him, not just a wish, to, a wish fulfillment, a Freudian wish fulfillment. It's a, it's a gift God gives you to make a new judgment. Faith is a new judgment, not a natural judgment, but a supernatural judgment that Christ is real, that God, the Holy Trinity, is real, that God can be encountered, and that God can dwell in us by grace, and that we can live in stable friendship with God. That's why we call them the theological habits or virtues, faith, hope, and charity, because we can now, by grace, live stably in friendship with God. And that this uh, allows us to then, uh, in a simple way, that it does not require expertise, live something that the philosophers of the ancient world aspired to, knowledge, stable knowledge of the highest things. It doesn't supplant philosophical questions about God. It can actually even augment them. It can give people who are really naively agnostic or naively theistic agonies that are suddenly atheistic. I mean, I see this all the time. People who go through a conversion to Christianity and then they acquire atheist doubts that are much more profound than they ever had because now the truth is on the line and they want to see if their faith and their reason coincide and they need to think intellectually, philosophically, much more about God than they ever did before. So it's a harmony without an identity of knowledge of faith and knowledge uh, that's philosophical. And this allows us then to live in friendship with God. And Aquinas has a lot to say actually about mental prayer, the way that a human being can live in simple friendship and intimacy with God by prayer and by study of revelation. However, and this is point nine, uh, he thinks this knowledge is still pretty imperfect in this life. That's to say, knowledge of God through faith. So, you know, two things to say here. Aquinas thinks faith, he calls it a seed. It's a principle that's alive. That, that, that's very important. Seeds grow. So the point for Aquinas is it, your initial level of faith, you ha if, you were if you happen to be baptized and you like made an act of faith once when you were six years old, Aquinas doesn't think that that's just like the perfect measure of faith. It's a living thing and it can grow all your life. In fact, it does grow. And it can grow more and more vital, more and more profound. So can hope, so can charity. So you can grow in love of God and love of other people in the grace of charity. It's like a... It's a, and, it's, and life grows through combat. Living things grow through struggle, and faith, hope, and charity grow through struggle. It's just a fact. But it's imperfect still in this life. It doesn't give perfect happiness. And Aquinas thinks that's good news. 
In fact, this is where I actually now say something that's very paradoxical but important. Aquinas thinks it's very important that in this life we experience a certain amount of deep unhappiness. And he actually thinks it's importantly good because he thinks the ultimate happiness cannot be had in this life. He doesn't think we should be miserable. He thinks the desire for happiness is very fundamental and we need to pursue it. But we should not be scandalized that it remains partially deeply unfulfilled because it's the negative sign of something very positive, which is we're oriented toward perfect knowledge of God in the life to come. Aquinas thinks we're capable, through grace, of coming not only to know God in faith by this life, but to see God face to face in the life to come. And that's the ultimate answer to the human search for the truth and the search to possess the good and to love rightly and well. The ultimate answer is to know God immediately in the divine essence, intellectually, by grace, to know God immediately in his divine essence, to possess God perfectly in love of God, and to find the rest, the repose of ecstatic fulfillment by living eternally with God and knowing him and loving him perfectly. Okay, that's the Christian hope. Many secular people look at that and blink. They think it's either there's not sufficient evidence for it or it's projective, delusional wish fulfillment or um, it's um, agonizingly tantalizing but therefore something to be avoided because we should have more mundane, humble desires. But Aquinas thinks you can desire all the normal things in this life and you still won't ever find the perfect fulfillment of all the riches of the human heart and the human mind. Because the human heart and the human mind are capable of always desiring a greater truth and a greater love that are never answered fully by the things of this world, however sublime. And that's the negative sign of the fact that we're called to something much greater that we can begin to enjoy already through uh, the life of grace. Now, I'm, I've been very ironic and peaceful in you know, giving Aquinas' views. Now I'm going to turn and just quickly, for about 10 minutes, give you some polemical thoughts. That's to say, if Aquinas is right, who's wrong? If Aquinas is right, there's a problem with what the, um, Amer- the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, in his book, A Secular Age, calls the imminent frame of modern liberalism. He means by the imminent frame, the framework of pure imminence that makes it um, philosophically forbidden and politically impolite to talk about God in public. Uh, I have a friend who's a Dominican who was an atheist, who became a philosopher, who became a Catholic, who became a Dominican philosopher, Catholic. And he, he, he calls this... He calls this the unstated secular asceticism. He says it's much worse than the sexual, it's much worse than the sexual asceticism of the Catholic Church. Because you have to put an asceticism, I mean, I'm being a little ironic, I think the sexual asceticism of the Catholic Church is very good for us. But the secular asceticism is where God may not be mentioned as a possible source of our happiness. And that means you have to live within the imminent frame. You might privately have suspicions or even something so 
um, illicit as religious practices on a Sunday, but you don't bring that into the public square so as to not embarrass other people and yourself. Okay, that's just wrong. I mean, if Aquinas is right, that kind of asceticism is just misbegotten. And of course, people will say, well, if you start saying that, you're going to practice religious warfare where people kill each other. No, it doesn't follow. Point two, Nietzsche's will to power. Um, I'm sure some of you have had the joy of reading Nietzsche. I'm actually quite interested in Nietzsche. I've read a lot of him. And, you know, it's not always easy to know what Nietzsche means when he talks about the fundamental aim of the human will as a desire for, as this kind of, um, the force of the will to power as a kind of fundamental vital force in life. Heidegger, when he interprets Nietzsche, calls this a kind of will to art. This is the postmodern interpretation of Nietzsche that then comes into Derrida and Foucault. And it's from Heidegger, and it's the idea that, in effect, we are fu- the fundamental kind of project of man is to create your own meaning. And so we're not fundamentally aiming at happiness, we're aiming at artistic creativity. The will to power is the will to art writ large at a, high, at a high level. Each of us is, as sort of Sartre also says, kind of burdened with the project of casting for each one of us, for ourselves, the meaning of our own existence. Um, the problem with that characterization of the will, different, that's a very different characterization of the fundamental act of the will, it's incompatible with the notion of friendship. There's no doctrine of friendship in Nietzsche, which means that you, he can't understand himself, we can't understand ourselves as we're Nietzscheans, by a common reference to a shared truth that regarding objective reality that precedes us and where we have a shared life of friendship in pursuit of the truth. But human beings actually find their deepest rest in the shared life of the pursuit of the truth about reality. Friendship between scientists. They don't walk into the lab and talk about what realities they're going to construct in their theories. They try to find the truth about reality, and they acquire friendship as scientists through um, intelligent lab work together. I mean, it's the same thing being parents, trying to find the truth of how to educate a child, a man and a woman talking about their children in private, about how to help their child. That's a search for the truth. That's a deep form of friendship, one of the most profound. Nietzsche has nothing to say about it. So there's a problem there. Third, a philosophy that closes itself off in principle from the beginning to any possibility of divine revelation, grace, and friendship with a God this is very polemical thing to say, is a philosophy that's no longer sufficiently rational, no longer sufficiently intellectually vulnerable to the truth. To be an intellectual is to be vulnerable to the truth. Now, there are plenty of Christians who are ideological and have hardened themselves to be invulnerable to the objections to Christianity. But believe me, if you don't know, and I think you probably do know, there's plenty of atheists who are capable of it too, and plenty of agnostics. There's lots of ways we can lose our vulnerability to the truth, and it just is the case that we remain vulnerable as intellectuals to the possibility of divine revelation. It's part of the honest stance of human thinking to consider the possibility that God reveals himself to humanity and that that's related to our potential for happiness. It's not an anti-intellectual question. Vatican I in the 19th century, the first Vatican Council stressed this, the kind of intellectual honesty of being open to the possibility of revelation philosophically. Fourth, uh, happiness for the rational animal cannot consist merely in pleasure, 
and utilities, whether of sensuality or materialistic possessions, against Hume's sentimentalism. We can't understand ourselves simply as a highly evolved mammal. I'm an evolutionist. I believe in evolution. But I don't think the human being can be understood simply in animalistic terms. Happiness has intrinsically spiritual dimensions. Fifth, happiness is about theoretical knowledge of ultimate matters or wisdom regarding the world understood in light of its ultimate causes. That's really actually important because it means the intellect cannot be instrumentalized only for the study of natural sciences. I should add technology, political activity, and monetary pursuits. What happens to a culture of the university when you lose God? The intellect gets instrumentalized for technology generation and wealth pursuit. And, of course, the politics of the future of tomorrow. All very important, licit, legitimate pursuits. But then when you begin to instrumentalize the human intellect, you begin to instrumentalize the human person. It's very hard to instrumentalize the human intellect for these purely economic, technological, and political purposes and not end up instrumentalizing persons. You create utilitarian economics where you're basically looking at people as fields of herd animals, preference choosers, and you try to orient them towards mass um, organizational structures for political purposes. It's not a... So, I, and this is a point also in John Henry Newman. Uh, the primacy of God as a pursuit of human knowledge and happiness is important for retaining the dignity of the human person as a reality that cannot be instrumentalized. Six, happiness is also about love and the possession of the good, especially in friendship that is reciprocal. And this means that happiness cannot just be about freedom. Maybe I'm making a polemical point here, particularly about Americans. Liberal freedom from constraint. I'm happy because no one is telling me what to do. I can do what I want with my money, with my body, with my time. I'm free from being constrained. My life is maximalized when I have the least commitments to other persons. No, that's not happiness. Nor can happiness just be about having vivid instincts and emotions, a kind of romanticism. You can have a profound romanticism of Byron or Keats or the romantic poets from which you can learn a lot. But you also have the superficial romanticism of Hollywood culture. There's more discipline involved in achieving real happiness. Uh, spiritual love for another person involves some asceticisms. It does not involve just spontaneity, just instinct, just artistic intuitions, just uh, living in the moment. It, it involves more prudence, more commitment, more justice, uh, care. Um, and that stability procured from a more deep spiritual love is what purifies love and makes more humane and, and happy, happy. And lastly, all of the points, uh, all of this points to the importance of the life of the virtues, intellectual virtues that acquire important forms of knowledge regarding God and human persons, moral virtues that stabilize and protect um, profound human love, and theological virtues that nurture friendship with God and mystical contemplation. So this is an institution called St. Thomas. Uh, I'm a Dominican who teaches St. Thomas, and you've heard tonight 
a version of happiness that comes from Thomas Aquinas. I hope it gives you some things to think about and some resources for your own reflection in life and your engagement with other people. Thank you. If you want to pose the question also, yeah, you please. If you want to pose the question in Portuguese, uh, I'm told it'll be translated, so that's... great questions. Okay. There's a really subtle distinction to be made on the first question between uh, the love of the other person and their love for me as something that is perfective of my own being and therefore advantageous to me versus something that's egoistic. So Aquinas says in friendship basically there are three aspects. Each of the people um, wants the good of the other in friendship according to virtue. Each of them wants, because he also talks about utilitarian friendship, like friendship between bank robbers. Like, are, you're good with a safe, I'm good with the drill. Or, you know, like that. uh, that's not the wanting the good of the other necessarily. I, we want the good of the other person. I delight, mutual desire for the good of the other person, mutual delight in the presence and life with the other person of some kind, and some kind of shared common goal. Like, so you could have a real friendship with someone you were playing sports with, but that's different than, like, say, someone you're marrying and having children with, or someone you're a, a colleague with in a philosophy department, or who you're, teach, you're teaching with in a school. Okay. So those things color the friendship. Um, Every one, for Aquinas, he's very clear about this actually, anyone who is loved by another uh, is perfected by being loved by the other. Um, and anyone who loves another in a way perfects himself. Because when another person loves me, it helps me love myself in a good way. There, Aquinas thinks there's healthy self-love and unhealthy self-love. I need healthy self-love. It's helpful when other people love me because it helps me see my own qualities better. Often we see other people, often other people help us see ourselves better than we know ourselves or they know aspects of us we don't or they tell us something about ourselves we can't see that well. Okay, So that's just the way it works. And so when someone loves us, it helps us love ourselves. That helps us give back to them and it helps them love themselves. 
So there's a way in which mutual friendship is mutually perfective. He says there's only one personal reality who can give to others without receiving anything from them, and that's the Creator. Because the Creator is giving them existence out of the sheer goodness of His being. So the only one who gives in a purely gratuitous way with nothing to re- in return is God. You know, mysteriously, because God's giving being unilaterally. We're not giving him anything. He's giving us everything. Or I could put it the other way around. God is giving us everything, and we're not giving him anything. Uh, that doesn't mean that God doesn't delight in us, but he delights in us because he delights in his own eternal goodness, non-egoistically. Okay, so there's a way in which giving my life to other people, giving myself to other people, serving other people, or loving God also is perfective of me. But it can be perfective of me in a way, of each of us, in a way that allows for healthy self-love as opposed to narcissism or egoism. And, but your concern is the great concern of like Kant and others who are worried, and it's, it's, a, it's a good worry, that eudaimonistic theories, theories based on happiness of ethics, theories of ethics based on happiness, eudaimonistic theories, are effectively in some ways self-referential. And the argument that the Thomists make back is, no, it doesn't have to be when you make the distinctions. Okay, um, can we have full knowledge of um, essences of created realities? Aquinas says no. He says, actually, we come to know things mostly by their properties, not by their essence. So, like, if I want to know the essence of a kangaroo, um, I first, like, just start learning that it's alive, and it moves, around, it moves itself, and it clearly seems to have sensations, so it's not a plant. And um, it has a pouch, and it feeds its young through lactation, so it's a mammal. Okay, so through properties, I start to figure out things about it. Um, and eventually, I can reach a kind of general essence, like, you know, like a genus, like animal and then I can give some specifying properties. But, you know, Aquinas has one text in the De Ante and Essentia in an early text where he speculates that it's not clear that there is a specific difference between all the, the non-human animals, that the kangaroo and the giraffe are really distinct species. They are for biologists, based on biological definitions, but that's, a, that's based on genes and reproductive capacity and other things. But, you know, when you think about it, metaphysically, they're both animals, like, what's the specific difference? He says men are specifically different because we have reason and free will, which stem from spiritual faculties. Yeah, so essences are kind of a project for Aquinas, and we acquire knowledge of them. We enrich our knowledge of essences progressively, and our knowledge remains imperfect. Why, in your opinion, uh, Thomism seems so despised today in uh, theological faculties in seminary yeah. and so on? Yeah. Why is Thomism so despised in so many seminary faculties? Well, I just put on a conference in Rome called Thomism after Vatican II, where I give a paper on this that's now online where I go into more... I'm just saying this because I go in there to the history of a lot of the the debates about Thomism at the time of the Second Vatican Council and in the last 50 years and try to address this very important question in a more developed way. So I'm just saying that it's available um, at the Angelicum Thomistic Institute website. If you Google Angelicum Thomistic Institute, 
go to the video, I mean, to the, the audio, you can find it. Um, I don't think there's one reason. Uh, it, it's clear, so for people who don't know, in the 19th century, Leo XIII, Pope Leo XIII, began a program, it's called the Leonine uh, Scholastic Reform, to advance the study of Thomas Aquinas in modern Europe and America to respond to secularism. This gave rise to important efforts in major university faculties across Europe, especially places like Leuven, um, actually some things in France, uh, lots of religious houses, certainly in Rome, especially in Rome, uh, centers for Thomistic study. What happened then was a very different thing, and I think this is part of the answer to the question, is Pius X, who was a saint and a great pope, in responding to the modernist crisis, then made Thomism, a, he, he placed a great deal of papal authority on making Thomism the normative philosophy of the Catholic Church. Now, when he, Aquinas doesn't actually think you should accept philosophical truths based on authority. Aquinas thinks you should accept philosophical truths based on arguments about the nature of reality. That being said, you know, authority has its role, and I'm not criticizing the fact that there was some authority there, but the fact of the matter is a lot of people adopted Thomism primarily in a kind of under an authority. And then from the 1920s to the 1960s, for 40 years, you had a kind of a very strong um, textbook manual Thomism. Some of it was sophisticated. It should not be thought of only negatively. There was a lot of sophisticated stuff and a lot of sophisticated historical studies by people like Gilson and Maritain was writing some very good Thomistic philosophy. But you also had a, an increasing resentment that Thomism was too uh, normative, too domineering, and too uh, uh, restricting on the Catholic mind. And so at the Second Vatican Council, you had a reaction to that to say, if we're going to be open to the world today, we need to no longer uh, fixate on Aquinas. We need to study contemporary philosophy and theology. Now, that, um, and that's been dominant in, for 50 years in Europe, I'd say less so in America, but it's there in America. And it's more dominant among theologians than among philosophers. I'm, a, I'm more a theologian than a philosopher, so I, I live and move and have my being with people who distrust Thomism. Um, the fact of the matter, paradoxically, we're in a moment right now where the exact things that led people after the Second Vatican Council to abandon Thomism are the, are the same things that are leading people, young people back to it, which is a desire for contemporary engagement. So the whole idea was if the church is going to be engaged with the secular culture today, we have to study contemporary philosophy and express the faith in a contemporary way. The problem is the secular academy is in internal crisis about the unity of knowledge because there's no longer a clear understanding in philosophy faculties and in universities and university administrations about how the knowledge of the modern sciences and of the political theory of rights and of deconstructive literary theory and of analytic philosophy and of old-fashioned continental phenomenology, how anyone can put any of all this together. And by the way, how does it fit with practical sciences from business and medicine and law, which are far more important for revenue in the university today than the old humanities? So the unity of the, of the university is in terrible crisis. And what's interesting is Aquinas' theory of the unity of knowledge 
speaks directly to young secular people. I know this because I've spent 10 years doing it. You can take a kid from the most elite school in the world and explain to them the the unity of knowledge, practical and speculative, the relationship between the natural sciences, philosophy of nature, philosophy of rights, relationship with this to metaphysics. Even if they don't know if Aquinas is right about some of the final conclusions, they say, oh, this is the most unified presentation of knowledge I've ever heard because they've been through university and they've never heard any theory of the unity of knowledge. So I think a humble Thomism that wants to exist in dialogue but that also uh, wants to present some of Aquinas' core ideas as potentially useful. You know, so, let me put it this way. A sufficiently confident Thomism and a sufficiently humble Thomism, as opposed to a super triumphalistic Thomism that's arrogant or um, a, a Thomism that's so self-hating that it can't actually engage. Because Aquinas just does have great resources. And I'll just finish with this. Where I see it coming back in the English-speaking world is analytic philosophers are interested in nature, they're interested in virtue theory, they're interested in human action, and they're interested in fundamental metaphysics. And they realize that Aquinas and Aristotle have to be part of the conversation. Yes, sir. Father Thomas, thank you so much for your presentation. You talked about being, uh, being vulnerable to the truth. If I understood, if I understood correctly, that means um, being open to change one's mind. Uh, my question is, how is it compatible to be vulnerable to the truth and be faithful at the same time? Uh, in, other, in other words, um, if I become vulnerable, if I feel vulnerable to the truth, should I become suspicious uh, of the consistency of my faith? Okay, so I'm going to take that as a theological question about supernatural faith. Uh, because, I mean, there's ways you could talk about, like, let's say, oh, just as an example, let's say I thought democracy is the best way to organize human society today, or maybe even in general. I mean, I'm, I'm actually a little more, I, I have more complicated views on that. I think democracy is very valuable, but... Anyway, let's just say I was strong, had a strong faith, human faith in democracy, which I, I guess I kind of do. And, but that I, I don't know, let's say it's World War II, and I'm seeing democracy menaced. Um, and sort of autocratic governments that seem to threaten uh, the democracy I have faith in. Um, I, could, I could be very vulnerable, you know, but I could also keep believing in it. And I might be vindicated by history, I might not. And that, by the way, is still true. Okay, so I'm just saying there's human analogies. Um, Okay, so you made the distinction yourself, I think, between vulnerability and uh, suspicion. I I think that actually uh, part of the vocation of every human being is to be vulnerable to the truth, be open to changing their mind, and to seek the truth. Now, the, the, the funny thing about... Aquinas himself says this about supernatural faith is in one way, supernatural faith, when God reveals something to me, of course Aquinas thinks that's real, when God reveals something to me and gives me the grace to believe it, he says in some way it's like human opinion. You know, like we all came here tonight because we had the opinion the talk would start at nine and we believed each other. It was faith, human faith. When God reveals something to us, we take God's opinion for, for granted. We think he's probably telling us the truth. It's revealed supernaturally. We believe it's supernaturally by grace. 
but it's like it's like opinion. But he says it's stronger, however, than any scientific certitude of natural human reason because it's God who reveals it. So he says in regards to the way of believing, because you believe on the word of another, it seems more fragile. But in terms of the thing known, it's the most certain thing possible because it's God who's revealed it and God's truth. So it's got to be true. So the instinct of faith is on some level extremely strong because it's a judgment by which I touch a reality. So I speak now as a believer, a theologian. If I know that Jesus Christ is real by faith, I just judge that he's real and I know it. I've been given the grace to know it. Now I've cultivated that judgment. I've nurtured it through praying to him, through sacraments, uh, through prayer. But it's the same judgment I had the day I received the faith. I was an adult when I received the faith, so I remember the first time I made an act of faith and knew Christ existed. Okay, so that's simple, and it's certain. And then there's another part of me that says, well, yeah, but I mean, what if you, know, you use a Marxist argument or a Freudian argument or a Humean argument? Or, and actually, my job in the Dominican Order is to consider all those arguments. And because I receive it on faith... I also have that space where I can consider all those arguments and then see why they don't necessarily um, obtain. They don't necessarily work. Aquinas says you can use philosophy to show either why, why an argument against faith is either erroneous or doesn't have to be the case. There's a weak form of defeat and a strong form of defeat. And I think that is part of the vocation of the Catholic intellectual is to think about, in vulnerability, the objections. And, and I receive them all the time. I was talking to someone two weeks ago, a really high-level person in artificial intelligence, who's trying to develop a robot that can basically do anything a human being can do. And it, you, know, you feel a little embarrassed when an atheist, materialist, artificial intelligence designer is saying to you, why would you think it was impossible for us to create a silicon-based human being? Because I'm sitting here dressed like this, and I'm thinking, if I say science can never do that, he's going to think I'm, like, persecuting Galileo and betting against science. You know, I'm like the religious zealot against science. And so when you start to try to enter into his presuppositions and talk with him philosophically, you sense, you sense, he has a pretty deep sense of vulnerability. I mean, I did eventually try to think about why. I, could, I mean, actually, I started with the human body. In the end, I came to the human body. I think if people don't have organic human bodies, they're not human. So I went, I went, I basically accused him of lack of not being materialistic enough rather than not being spiritual enough. And he, he thought that was a good argument. Um, I, I didn't finish. We will hopefully continue the dialogue. But, you know, the point is, I think that those kinds of dislocations or vulnerabilities are part of the vocation. And it's good. But you know what? I never doubt the faith I, myself. Like I, engage, I read all these books. Uh, I read also theologies that are incompatible with the Catholic faith. Exegesis is incompatible with the Catholic faith. Philosophy is incompatible with the Catholic faith. And it's funny, I just, I mean, I've been doing this for 30 years and I've never doubted the faith. Um, but I could see lots of reasons why people could or how they work. And I, and I try to think of the answers to them. That's my, that's my vocation because I'm a Dominican theologian. <laughs> But I mean, I think I know many people who do it, and I think the fact that it can be done is significant. It shows you can have the certitude and the vulnerability at the same time. I see a hand down here, and maybe I'll take this as the last question, just so we can I can liberate you all. 
all these people on the stage don't get a choice whether they can leave, right? They're just... <laughs> yes, sir. Assuming that we have uh, two, two generations in the room, the parents and the sons, my generation and the end. Yes. In, in, our, in our time, in our generation, mine and yours probably, we were used to the fact that happiness doesn't come every day, doesn't come without a price, without an effort. And uh, uh, I think it's fair to say that today's youngers, uh, the, they are more um, unwilling to wait for real happiness and they are more unwilling to pay the price or the effort for real happiness. If this is true, what do you think we, we have to teach our sons in order for them to achieve uh, uh, more real happiness? Yeah, okay. Well, I think actually maybe you're being generous to my culture because I think the therapeutic... The therapeutic vision of immediate happiness was very pre present, uh, for, has been present in a long time in the United States, and unfortunately, maybe we're exporting it. Um, <laughs> I worked for 10 years as a, I taught theology for 10 years in Washington, D.C., but I also worked as a priest with mostly people in their 20s in Washington, D.C. My number one pastoral challenge as a priest was to talk to people in, who were 25, 26, 27 in despair. And it's interesting, they couldn't even articulate what it was, despair. I mean, these are very people from often privileged backgrounds. It was, very, it was stronger during the economic downturn in the early 2000s, but it's still, it's, okay. Why is it easy to fall into despair? For all of us, I would definitely put myself on the list. I can go on Amazon and push a button and in two days, stuff arrives at my front door, whatever I want, right? It's, it, it's very efficient. Um, I can go to the drive-in, and well, in America, we eat fast food. I mean, I've seen a few places here. I can go to the drive-in, and I can just, you know, uh, get what I want immediately. I, now I can push a button, and Uber will come to my front door and take me to the airport, okay? We're living in a society of refined technological efficiency, that delivers a whole group of, of, of services to us almost immediately. Okay, uh, think about television. I mean, I don't know how many channels there are in, in Europe, really. I happily don't now have television in, in Rome, but there are like 500 channels in the United States. Um, so you can just sit there. Actually, you could make your vocation in life to just change channels all day. <laughs> and the internet is like this too, right? You can, you can find information all over the world instantly. Now, not all this, I don't, this isn't all negative, but what does it create? It creates a psychological claim, belief of immediate fulfillment. Then you connect this belief of psychological, this kind of habit of psychological immediate fulfillment with the culture of therapeutic, um, a kind of culture of therapy, a culture of I'm, I'm trying to find my psychological equilibrium, I'm trying to not hurt too much, uh, I'm trying to find the right balance between work and rest. And, you know, it's a, in a way, my, my, pro, my life project is about getting the right life equilibrium. Uh, when you put these kinds of, like this consumer lifestyle together, <laughs> when you face a difficult good, like prolonged study of the truth, or, you know, I don't know what, finishing medical school, or, you know, really kind of spending your life reading, reading things that are a little more challenging. Uh, instead of watching Netflix, I'm going to read Dostoevsky. Can you imagine? Um, 
Um, or uh, like what it requires in friendship to like really build a relationship that could become a marriage that could actually like it has the maturity, you know, to actually endure, have children and the patience, of course, it requires to make sacrifices for children, which, by the way, I can tell you this. I also have worked with a lot of my second pastoral problem of people in their 40s who never had children. And it's not really that it's, it's better to get married and have children, even if they're expensive. Anyway, um, um, and then, of course, the life of prayer with God, right? I mean, to, to like build up a relationship with God, you have to go to church. Like, it helps if you do it every day and you really pray. I mean, people want to have a mystical experience of God without actually spending any time with God on God's terms. So that doesn't work either. Okay, so then what happens is that people, when they hit the hard things, fall into despair. And despair is the belief that you don't have means to achieve the end. It means you think you have no recourse. And uh, so the, fa- the fact is, pastorally, I've tried to try teach people to make seven acts of hope a day. That's the thing I was taught by an old French priest once. Make seven acts of hope in God a day. But hope is actually a very powerful theological virtue that we don't think about or study enough because it can incarnate in all our activities. And it can incarnate in, like, in other words, it can like, motivate a lot of, of um, less taste, more distasteful activity that's in view of deeper stability and deeper happiness. So I think it's, it's, it's really important to live a life of hope. And hope is, hope is another problem. It's related to happiness. Uh, but living a life, being a person that's hope. The, so most, undi- I think the undiagnosed spiritual disorder of the modern world that we have the most difficulty in naming is various forms of despair. And the remedy that we have the most difficulty identifying is hope. And uh, so the two Catholic doctors of hope, though, are Thomas Aquinas and Therese of Lisieux. So if you study their works, you start to see what it looks like to pursue hope. All right, thank you very much. You all have been a wonderful audience.